obviously. I love Jason. But to hear Josh sing, I mean, it's, it's I dream about things like that. I, I rarely get to hear um, Josh sing. So um, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today. Um, I know and recognize that today, this Sunday, is is not like every Sunday. Um, that you know, there's been deep hurt uh, within the family here, the church, and um, it's a hurt that some people know and some people don't. Um, but it's a hurt that is real, and um, the Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. Um, and there's one verse that I want to want to read. Um, the Lord kind of put on my heart, um, having gone through something similar, and it's it's one of those verses that we can really um, go back to, and unfortunately, we will go back to from time to time through life. And so, I want to read it. Um, it's in Psalms. It says the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as though who have a contrite spirit, which means a crushed spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. God is completely faithful. God is completely committed, and God is completely consistent in our lives. Uh, when we go through the hardest things we'll ever deal with, and we're having the best moments, and um, just wanted to recognize that um, you know, for this church and, and for what's happened here, um, I just want to pray and start off with that, um, and then we'll get into the, the word. So let's pray. Lord, I just, I pray, God, that um, you just bestow compassion where it's needed, Lord, that you rain down comfort where it's needed, God, knowing that you are the God before bad things happen, and you're the God during those things happening, and you're going to be our God after those things, Lord. Not that the dust ever settles, Lord, but we know that you're with us through the dust and through the storms. And I just pray, Lord, for this congregation, for the families, for the hurt, Lord. Um, and I pray also for today's word. I just pray, God, that you speak to our hearts, that you challenge us um, in what uh, what James had to say, Lord. And uh, again, I just thank you for this church. I pray that the Holy Spirit, I pray you're with us. I pray that you fill me up, Father. And um just thank you for this place. I'm, I'm thankful to be a vessel of yours today here. Uh, we love you and we give you all the praise and all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this is something that I had prepared for a while now. And, um, and you know, uh, the Lord said stick with it. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, James chapter 2. And I'm going to start at verse uh, 14, but before we get to, to that, I kind of I always like to kind of give you a outlook of James, you know, uh, kind of who's the writer, who's he writing to, give you some more context. In the book of James, it's, it's known as the strength coach. Uh, it's a challenging book. Um, it's a very real book. Um, it's really cool uh, once you get into knowing who James is, uh, but it's, it's really the strength coach uh, when it comes to all the other books and letters. It's a tough book. Um, it's sometimes it's, it's a hard pill to swallow uh, when you go through some of the things James had to say in those five chapters. 
sometimes it causes confusion, uh, even to some of the well, most well-known scholars. In fact, the area that we'll be in today uh, is the sole re- reason where Martin Luther himself said that the book of James was, is, is, is nothing more than straw. That it should be straw for the fire, to be burned in the fire. So, um, you know, it, all because there are some themes that at the first glance it appears to put that some things the Apostle Paul said in contradiction uh, with the book of James. Uh, but I want to get into that as well and dive into those things. Some things Paul said about grace and works, uh, where here he's going to talk about works. Uh, but as we dive into it, I hope to show you that there is no conflict. Um, and when it comes to faith, works are important. Um, you know, we, we know that we are saved by grace through faith, right? Uh, and, and not of works. And we're going to go through that as well. But when it comes to our daily lives and it comes to the lives we live, a lot of the Bible points out good works and looks to good works, um, you know, for the merit of men and women. So this book opens up with James identifying himself as the bondservant of Jesus Christ in, in chapter one. Now there's several theories on which biblical James this is, um, who could have written this letter? Uh, it was addressed to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. So it's written to the Jewish messianic believers that were scattered abroad. So it kind of gives us a context of who he's writing it to, but also kind of the, the, the timeline, meaning probably after the persecution and the scattering of the church into surrounding areas, surrounding countries. Um, but it seems to mainly address the Messianic Jewish believers, but we know because of its canonization into the Bible that it's speaking to us as the church as well, not just the Jewish believers. I think James had a reason he was writing to the Jewish believers about his context here, uh, but for us, it's simply addressed to the church. Uh, he, will, he will reference, he'll call them the brethren. When he wants to say something, he says, and brethren, and he mentions that 17 times. And when it comes to the brethren, he's talking about the brothers and sisters of Christ in the church. Um, but some say that this is James, this brother of John, the one of the other you know brothers of Zebedee or the sons of Zebedee. Uh, but we know that that James was martyred first. He was martyred very early on in the church, so most likely this was not him. Now this book is actually one of the first letters written and 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 produced. Um, but we know that it probably most likely wasn't him. Also, some say uh, James the Less, who was one of the disciples, one of the apostles, um, but we don't have a lot of record after his, after crucifixion. There's not a lot talked about him. So most likely this is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I think most people would in their mind go to this is James, the brother of Jesus, but I kind of just wanted to point out those things in case it was in question. And we know that James and his other siblings were in opposition of Jesus while Jesus was growing up. Uh, when Jesus started his ministry, uh, they were in they were in opposition to his claim to the Messiahship. In the Gospels, we hear the siblings coming to Jesus, taunting him to go to Jerusalem and to prove himself. If you really are the Son of God, go show yourself. We we know that in the Gospels, they came to Jesus when he was ministering to the disciples inside the house, and he said, "Our brother's crazy. Tell him to come outside. We want to see him." And Jesus remained indoors and said, "These are my brothers and sisters," talking about the family with of the church. Uh, and one other thing that no one, I, I didn't really think about much, was at the cross. At the cross, when Jesus was dying, he told John to care for Mary. He basically gave Mary as a mother to John. Why? Uh, he, why didn't he give him to any of the, he had five brothers that are listed in the Bible. And it says he has sisters, but we don't know how many. It's plural, so we know he has multiple sisters. We just don't know how many. But it's so interesting that there at the cross, he imparts him to John and not, or imparts Mary to John and not James or any of the other siblings. 
uh, most likely because they were not believers at the time. So James, though, was a true Jewish believer. He believed in God. He believed in God through the law and the prophets, um, according to the Old Testament. But he rejected that his own blood brother could be the son of the Most High God. And I could understand that because, one, nobody believes their brother is God, right? If you have siblings, you know that they're flawed, and there's no way that they're going to be. But we know Jesus, he, he, he led a perfect life. He was the perfect son, the perfect brother. You know, it probably drove James and all the other rest of them nuts. You know, they were just like, are you kidding? Like, this goody two-shoes, you know, he's always being commended everywhere we go. And, you know, I, I can imagine as a brother that was probably quite annoying. But also to admit that your brother was the Messiah was blasphemy in a lot of ways. And it would mean excommunication, not only from the families, but from the church and, and from the temple. And, and you know, so it, it meant a lot for all early Jewish believers in the early church to stop and go, I'm going to make a decision in my life and that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow after Jesus. For us, I mean, most of us, you know, we may have friends that don't want to hang out with us anymore because now all of a sudden we're Christians. Or we, you know, uh, maybe some family members that want to make fun of us from time to time. But in those days, it was it was worse. If you believed and you preached the name of Jesus, oh, man, you could be arrested. Um, you could be persecuted by the Jews. I mean, there's there's many things. You could be excommunicated from your your, your livelihood, your careers, your, your your position within the church. doesn't matter if you are a Pharisee or a— and part of the Sanhedrin, you were out. And so it meant a lot for, for James to, to have admitted that, but we know he didn't. But afterwards, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, we know that James had a run-in with his brother. At some point, he had a run-in with his brother, and he began to understand. You know, he, he finally saw his brother die, and now he's seeing his brother, his brother resurrected, and he goes, okay, maybe my brother was God. <laughs> maybe I was wrong my whole life. And he began to believe in Jesus, and he began to understand, oh, man, every word that Jesus ever said, and he starts to think back in his head, all those things. He wasn't lying. He was, he was, he was saying the truths of God, and every move Jesus ever made, every, every good work he saw Jesus do, they started coming back to James probably, and he was going, oh, my gosh, I remember now. This is why he did what he did. This is why he said what he, he is the son of the Most High God. He is my brother, but he's also son of God. So, you know, we know that um, that he believes so much that he went out and he evangelized all his other siblings to the point that if you go to Acts, it says that Mary and, their, and all his brothers were there in the upper room during Pentecost. So he had done a good job of going back and being like, guys, Jesus was the Messiah. So he was, he was living a new life at this point. Um, he was there. He was present. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just find this book remarkable because it's written by a man who, who knew Jesus his whole life and rejected him. You know, he, 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 he could, you know, brush his teeth next to the Messiah. You know, he could eat breakfast next to Jesus. You know, he would go on trips with Jesus. You know, it's, he, he lived his whole life next to him and, and watched every movie make and every good work he did. And I think that's why J James has such a passion for the church. I think that's why James has such a reason to impart these things upon us that he's writing in this book. And I think that's why they're so important because there's not a lot of, I mean, we know about Paul. We know what happened when he saw to Paul and he rejected Jesus and, and all that. But here was a man who grew up with Jesus. I mean, he had a long time to decide whether or not his brother was the Messiah. But then he got faith after he saw him. And you can really feel the influence upon James that Jesus had laid upon him 
James goes on to be known as a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. Paul even mentions him several times, referring to him as James, the brother of our Lord. I mean, what a title, right? One of the cool things about James, though, if you read his book, he never claims that. He never starts his book by going, I, James, brother of the, the son of God, like I would, right? I would be like, I know how tall he was. I know his hair color. Uh, we were close. He probably liked me more than he liked anyone else. You know, I would wear it as a badge, but he doesn't do that. He calls himself a bondservant, uh, which just speaks to, I would say, his understanding of how much grace he's received by Jesus. I, I think he had such respect for Jesus to the point where Jesus accepts him regardless of how James ever t- treated him, how James ever taunted him. He didn't care. He knew that his brother was going to be uh, an integral part in the Bible and an integral part in the early church. So this book is full of just amazing verses, exaltations, advice, sometimes just the word we need to hear in conviction. Some words will bring us into conviction, you know, but I really want to focus here in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, where James is addressing, he's really speaking to genuine believers, genuine Christians that have a genuine faith that want to continue in their maturity, that want to grow within their walk with Christ. He speaks to these things because he wants to bring us all into a greater maturity. And I think that's something that is important to him because he's probably had a lot of growth since that day at Pentecost. And so he's, he's, you know, he's, he's addressing the genuine believers about the genuine faith, but he's also warning nominal believers about their non-evidential faith. He's, he's pointing out, well, okay, well, you say you believe, but where do you, I don't see where you believe. And we'll get into that. He's speaking to a faith, not a faith that leads you unto salvation, but a faith that comes after salvation and the expectations that, that come with it. So let's read it in James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, what profit, he starts with a question, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute without, with, with, of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not do anything to give them things which are needed for the body, what does it Profit. Thus, also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. So right off the bat, he, he addresses this with a question. And this is the question. What is the point of a faith that has no works? Is that the kind of faith that can save? That's what he's saying. He's saying, what is the point of having a belief in God if you have no works? Now, this is why it, it is, uh, you know, it gets a little hairy, right? Because we know what Paul said about works. And we'll go into that, too. But if you look throughout the rest of the Bible and what Paul said, you will see that works are definitely important for us as Christians and maturing. So he is addressing those here who say they believe, but in their lives there is no evidence of a saving faith. They don't have anything in their lives to show for it. They're not changed in a sense. This is, like I said, where Martin Luther had a problem with this book because at first glance it seems that James is implying that works are what it takes to have a saving faith. Well, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that if your faith is genuine, if you have a genuine faith, there will be works in your life that are evident of your faith. They work hand in hand. And that's what he's pointing out. He gives the example of the brother or sister naked without food. What are you going to do about it? Now, one thing I want to point out about this 
example that he gives is the term brother and sister here is, is not talking about benevolence. Meaning like if we had you know, somebody who's never come to the church before, you've never seen them, but they come in naked and hungry, right? And if you, if you, you know, what are you going to do about it? Basically, this is not speaking to the, the person coming off the street needing those things. Now, churches have benevolence. Benevolence is not a very easy thing to do. Benevolence a lot of times comes with um, a lot of hard decisions and um, uh, discernment. But it's a great way for the church to help the community, help somebody that does come off the street, give them some food, give them a blanket, give them what they need. The church does that. But what this is actually speaking to is brothers and sisters within the church. So it's talking about us, meaning the congregation, the family, the church, right? This isn't a, this isn't a church. I've always heard it said, you don't join the church, you're born into it. Just like a family. You don't join your family, right? You are born into your family. And that's the way it is with the church. Um, so they're talking about that here. Um, and like I said, this is not necessary, necessarily benevolence, but it is in a sense. But this is more so just the church taking care of the church. But in this case, he's describing to those within the congregation. So you know, he's asking, what will you do? Will you just say, be hungry, be, you know, be filled and, and be warm and set them on their way? You know, it's it's basically in a sense of are you just going to say something or are you going to do something? Now, I've heard it said several times, sometimes it's okay to pray less and do more. Now, for you prayer warriors, you're like, hold on. <laughs> no, you pray more and then you do more. But oftentimes what we do is we use prayer as our action, but we actually don't do anything. Where there's a physical need involved you know, sometimes we use prayer as a cop-out. You go, okay, well, I see your needs, but let me just pray for you. Now, that's not a bad thing. But if you just say, okay, now you've been prayed for, go on your way, then you've really done nothing. So you, you, you see how the, the, the faith goes beyond just what you say. It, it, it moves on to more of what you do. So he's challenging the believer that if you have a genuine faith, you will have genuine works to show for it. Now, here's where I want to open up some, you know, what Paul had to say. And, and I think this is important. So uh, I think you have Ephesians uh, 2 on the board. Oh, man, who's doing that? Oh, that's like, I know, you just say it and it pops up. Jeez, uh, moving on up. All right, in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8, and I know you have all heard this verse before, but this is what Paul writes. He says, for grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith. That's true. That's all very true. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by the grace of God through our faith. It's our faith that brings us to God, and it's his grace that offers us salvation. Never get that twisted. That is very important. And Paul wants to point that out. It's not faith that saves us, but God that saves us. Now, James does not dispute this. He doesn't even address this. He goes on right after to say, Paul does, and he says, And not of yourselves... It is a gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, it does kind of sound like a contradiction, right? We're talking about, you know, James is talking about faith and works and how important works are. And Paul's going, it's not about works, lest you boast. This is very true. Listen, works does not save us. Grace saves us through faith. Faith. Now, James goes on to write in verse 17, Back to James, he says, thus also faith by itself, it does not have, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's talking about a dead faith. He's talking about a certain kind of faith. 
He's not talking about the faith unto salvation. He's talking about the faith afterwards. The, the, you know, what is to come for us, basically, the expectations there. So, you know, he's, he's not writing to us what it means to have faith, saving faith, but warning us not to have a dead faith, an unprofitable faith, is what he's saying. And I think Paul agrees that works are essential to our faith, because you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and you finish out the verse. He says, for we are his workmanship. I always love that word because in the Greek it means poema. And, you know, we are his poem that he's writing in a sense. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you see Paul in one verse says that we should not have, you know, we shouldn't base our salvation on works. We can't unless we boast, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think us walking in those good works is work. So here, Paul is pointing out those. And I wanted to read a few other verses um, just to drive it home. In Matthew, Jesus says, Let your line, light, these aren't on the board, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And John, Jesus said, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which of those works do you stone me? In Acts, uh, at Joppa, where there was a certain woman named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, the, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So again, you can look through the scriptures and see where Jesus mentions looking out for good works. When Paul wrote to Titus and Timothy, whenever they were talking about who would be deacons and who would be elders and who would be pastors, it specifically mentions looking for good works in their lives. Uh, Titus, uh, it says, and who gave himself up for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself one, our own special people zealous for good works works. This is a faithful saying in Titus chapter 3, and these things I want to want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Not to mention you could go all the way to Revelation, and when Jesus goes in to start addressing the churches, in a lot of ways he starts addressing their works and the things that they're doing. You know, So this idea isn't something new, but if 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 you get confused on what Paul's trying to say compared to what James is trying to say, basically they're saying the same thing, that works are important in our lives, that we should not be the kind of Christian that, that just says, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, that's enough. No, we should have more than that in our lives. And, and, and guys, I'm not here to say that you – know, Jason didn't call me and say, hey, I need you to, to teach on this. <laughs> he didn't say, I need my congregation to do more works. That's not what happened here. I think it really hit me hard in my own life, and I feel like the Lord said, go with it. And, but it's an important thing for us because I think we can get to our comfort zone and stay within that when it comes to our works and, and never go beyond that. Where I think God has, again, more good works for you, but you know, we, we kind of limit ourselves there. So verse 18, going back to James, verse 18 of James chapter 2 gives us all that summed up in this saying. He says right here, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Again, remember, say, someone will say, not do, not show. He says, I will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See what he's saying? You can say you have faith, but you don't have works. But if you look at my life, I will show you my faith by my works. I don't have to tell you about my faith because you see me living out my faith. And again, which of those two people would you rather be? The one that says, I have faith, but, you know, people know I'm a Christian. I mean, that's enough, right? Right? I mean, people know that I go to church. People know that I pray sometimes. I mean, I think that's enough. And I think we get uh, we get in that comfort zone, you know, but, you know, I guess I really don't have much evidence in my life, you know, that I'm actually a Christian. People, people when they meet me, don't go, there's something different about this guy or this girl, right? They, you know, or like Jesus wanted, he says, do you live a life that they know you're a disciple of Jesus Christ by simply how you treat others, how you love your brothers and sisters and how you care for the world? How you care for those who you fellowship here within the church at Refuge. I mean, that's a lot of what James is speaking to, the church taking care of the church. You know, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by how you love each other, right? And you could say, I love you, and it's nice, but if you don't have anything to back up your love, if there's no evidence of your love, if there's no good works or, or, or anything done in good faith, then, then, you know, some people, they're not going to really believe you that you love them especially in times of need, especially in times of, of hurt. Um, and, you know, whether it's a, a financial or physical need, you know, uh, this is where the church can come together. Let's keep reading James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Now here he's speaking again to the Jews, right? He's speaking to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Also, I love the fact that James doesn't say the 12 lost tribes of Israel, because a lot of people believe that the tribes are lost. Well, James is pointing out they're not lost, even in this time, that they are not the lost tribes of Israel. They're there. And he says, um, you believe that there is one God. This was one of the things that the Jews would say on a daily basis with their prayers, is that they out loud would say, we believe in the one true God, the God of the most high God. That's something that they would make sure that they said out loud. He says, you do well. That's a good thing to believe that. But then he says, even the demons believe and tremble. He says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, what that faith without works is dead? So he first talks about a dead faith. And a death, dead faith is just a faith without works. Then he goes on to talk about a demonic faith, which is kind of intense. <laughs> but what he's saying is that there's no doubt in a demon's mind that God exists. That he is real. There's no, there's no doubt in uh, you know, a demon's mind that Jesus was the son of God. And we know that because when Jesus confronted demons, oh, what are you doing? You know, the, the, this is not our time. Why are you coming against us? Be, you know, they were afraid of Jesus. They trembled before Jesus. And I think it's interesting because I think if you look at the statistics, and I didn't look up the statistics as of right now, but I think like 90% of Americans will say they believe in God. 90, 90% of Christians will say that, or 90% of Americans will say that they are Christians. 70% of people will say they pray. But you look at our, our country and you look at, the, at what's happening from, you know, from, from state to state, from, from coast to coast, and you, you go, what do you mean? We're people that believe in God. We're people that, that believe in Jesus. And even though the statistics are high, that doesn't mean that there is true, genuine, mature faith in those believers. And so here he declares that works, that faith without works is dead. Again, he's not speaking about salvation. 
But a faith without works is unprofitable. It's a dead faith. Then he goes on to talk about a demonic faith, meaning, you know, you may know somebody who goes, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't. There's, they don't go to church. They live in sin. You know, there's no change in their life. There's, there's, there's nothing different about them in the world. And again, we're careful to not judge, right? We're, we're careful to not point these things out. Well, the book of James says you're a demon. Yeah, don't do that. But he's just pointing out the fact that there is belief and then there's true genuine faith. And I think that is what he is speaking to here. Even nominal Christians that say they believe in God and Jesus, but they continue to live a life, a fruitless life, a faith without evidence of good works. I think herein lies the warning from James. But he doesn't stop there, which I think is great. He goes on to verse 21, and now he starts to what what Joe Foch calls a dynamic faith. So dead faith, demonic faith, and a dynamic faith. And dynamic faith meaning a genuine faith, a faith that changes who you are. Not only changes who you are, but it will change the people around you because they see the good works of God in you. So let's read verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he is called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by his justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? And she received the messenger and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I love the fact that James stops and he gives a, a few examples of, of, of people throughout scripture that, um, that not only made a decision on their faith, but they backed it up with their works. They backed it up with what they truly believe. Um, he starts up. With, he starts with Abraham. Now Abraham, um, you know, a Gentile. If you think about it, he was the father of the Jews, but in all purpose, he was a Gentile. And I think that's one of the coolest things about Abraham that that you know you could go and look at all the times where Jesus told the Christians to treat the Gentiles the same as you treat the Jews, and you know it comes up in the Acts, and then it comes up in the, the letters, and you know there's this whole problem where the Jews hate the Gentiles and they won't even touch them, and they won't share, you know, they won't even go to the marketplace with them, and all these things. But if you look all the way back to it, Abraham was a Gentile, <laughs> and so um, you know it talks about how Abraham was justified. I do want to go over to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Again, to back up what James is saying, if you look at, if you read all of chapter 11, it brings up the person, it brings up their decision to follow God, and it brings up their works to prove it. So here in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he, he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So again, Abraham you know, came to know God, to be a friend of God, and God said, Abraham, I want you to go. I, I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I want you to go. So he goes, I'm going to follow you, God. By faith, he dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker was God. 
So it says that Abraham was justified by his righteousness, right? That was his, him making a decision. But not only that, he took up everything he had and he moved to this place. God moved him and said, wait there. Then you go down to verse 17 and it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises of offered oh wait, sorry, he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the cool thing about this story is when Abraham gets called to go, he goes. It's 35 years later that he goes to offer Isaac up. So he was justified in his his righteousness and his faith in God, but he was also justified in his works 35 years later when he offered up his son Isaac. You know, God had promised him that he would be the, you know, the father of the Jews and that his descendants would outnumber the stars and that, that the, the seed, which he didn't truly understand it at the time, would come through his bloodline and that Isaac was part of that bloodline. But in verse 19, I love this. He says, concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead or raise him up even from the dead. So in his mind, even though he did not actually offer up Isaac, in his mind, Isaac was already offered up. Because he knows that when if he was going to plunge the knife into Isaac, he had him on the table, he had him tied down, he had everything right. And God stopped him at the last minute and said, don't do it. Because in his heart, he had already offered up Isaac. And I love the fact that he didn't even question the fact that in the, in the King James, it says uh, that he would be raised him up even from the ashes because he was to be burned after that. And he had, no, he had no problem in his mind going, the same God that called me up here to this mountain is also going to be the same God that rise, raises my son back up from these ashes. Justified in his, not just his work or his faith, but in his works. So again, uh, James gives this example. Then he goes on to Rahab. You guys familiar with Rahab? Right? The book of Joshua. You know, they're coming into the promised land. They're just, you know, uh, just whooping up towns and, you know, you know, beating up everybody and, and taking over. And they come to Jericho and they send in these spies. They send in these messengers and they, they come in, uh, they get their way in. And then you know, the king catches word that the Jews are there and that they're, they're looking to take over Jericho. And they start sending out search parties. Well, they go to Rahab's and it says that Rahab um, is a harlot. Um, now, this it would be, you know, a place, you know, where you would go um, to, to partake in those kind of things. And, but it's interesting because that was probably the last place that these Jewish men wanted to go. But that's where they end up going. And Rahab, who was a Gentile there on the walls of Jericho, took them in. Her, then, then, then the king of uh, Jericho sent people to her door and said, we know they're here. Where are they? She hid them on the roof and then she let them down to go back. And she made a decree with them, say, I've saved you. You know, when you come in to destroy this, because I know that your God will do what you say and that he will take this city. I trust and have. She made a decision in her heart. And with that decision in her heart, she backed it up with her works by letting the messengers out another way. So much so that when they came into Jericho, Joshua told them, don't touch anybody in Rahab's house. Leave, leave every, if everybody's outside the house, they're, they're, they're yours for the taking. But anybody inside the house, don't touch. So she was saved. Now, one cool thing, again, these are two Gentile people, two Gentile examples that James is giving. Abraham being the greatest, right? The father of the Jews. I mean, he was just, you know, everybody looked up to Abraham. But then a harlot in a, in a city 
pointing out her faith and her works. I just love the fact that James would go to those two lengths. Not to mention, if you go to the book of Matthew, you can go look at the genealogy of Jesus and guess whose name is right there? Both of them. (laughs) It can go all the way back to Rahab, who is King David's great-great-grandmother, and it can go all the way back to Abraham. Now, I I wanted to add uh, two more examples of of people in the Bible that uh, have made a decision and had something to show for it. And if you'll turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19, I'm going to read it on the board because it'll take me forever to find 1 Kings. So where we are in this story, um, God had come to Elijah and told him, I need you to go and, I, and anoint Jehu, the king of Israel, and I want you to go and find Elisha, the son of Shaphath, uh, and he will be your successor. He will, be, he will take your mantle. He will be the next Elijah. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphath, 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 I don't know, Shaphat, uh, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. That means he was not only the owner of the property, he was you know, tilling the land himself. He was working. Um, and then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, uh, meaning that Elijah, being a prophet of God, wore a certain garment. Uh, it wasn't an actual mantle. It was a, it was a garment, a piece of cloth. Uh, and when he came to Elisha, he took it off and he threw it upon him. And he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will go follow you. So Elijah knew what was going on. He knew what this meant, that this prophet of God, this, this man who had rained down fire on the, the, you know, the worshipers of Baal, and, and he, he knew what this meant. And he goes, let me, let me please go kiss them. So apparently Elijah just threw it and kept going. Right? He didn't stop with them there. And he goes, uh, and he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And what that means is, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what this mantle means? That's what he's really trying to say. Do you understand that God is calling you, that God is calling you to be a prophet of mine? So Elisha turned back from him. He took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. This is where his works are evident because he in his heart made a decision. I'm going to follow Elijah. I'm going to be a prophet of God. And he took his oxen, slaughtered them, ate them. He, he, in the fire, he threw all the oxen's equipment. Do you know what that means? He burned his livelihood. He burned everything he owned. Now, I'm sure the rest of his family was not happy. They were probably like, okay, you're leaving, but now we don't have oxen and we don't have the equipment. But I think for Elijah, it had to be done. It was him, his good works going, I'm going to burn my old life and I'm not coming back to it. Could you imagine if he left it all there and it didn't work out for him a week later, he got homesick. Well, I can just go back to my, my job. I can just go back to my equipment, go back to my oxen. No. Elisha said, no, I'm going to give my entire life. I'm going to burn everything, let everything go. So just another example of somebody who, who made a decision to follow after God with a genuine faith and has genuine good works. And the last one I want to point out to is one that kind of gets overlooked. I don't know if Jason's taught it. He might have because he's a good teacher. Um, but if you ever thought about – sorry if I'm yelling. If you ever thought about – and it doesn't really speak to it much in the Gospels – But when Jesus dies on the cross, 
Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and requests his body. He begs for his body. Now, to understand this completely, you have to understand Joseph of Arimathea is a very rich man. You would equate him to the, you know, the owners of Amazon, you know, the owners of Apple, the, the Apple Valley type people, right? Not Apple Valley, the uh, Silicon Valley. He was extremely wealthy. He was so wealthy to a point that he, did, he was from Arimathea. He wasn't even from Jerusalem, but he had enough money to come there and hire men to literally scrape with, hand, with, with nails and hammers a tomb into solid rock. That's how rich he was. He had that tomb there. He goes to Pilate. He begs for Jesus' body. Pilate gives him Jesus' body and says, you know, he wants to give him a true Jew, Jewish burial. He wants to do right by Jesus' corpse. Right, so they go retrieve his body. They're, they're, they had certain things they have to do. Joseph would have had to have gone to the market and um, ordered uh, or, or bought a linen, a certain kind of linen that they wrap the body in, uh, the certain straps that they have to wrap the body in. Along that way, Nicodemus shows up, and they're not alone. They most likely had servants or people with them or working with them. We don't have any of those listed, but we have Joseph of Arimathea and we have Nicodemus. And these two men, Nicodemus was a very wealthy man. He was a very powerful man. He was one of the Pharisees. Both of these men were probably part of the Sanhedrin. And, um, and, and he's got along with him over 60 pounds of the burial spices and oils. All for this corpse. All for Jesus' body. Two men that had not followed him that we know of. Two men that, that had interactions with him. But when they saw Jesus die, they had enough respect for him. They didn't know what has happened three days later. Right? They had no recollection. They had no recollection of anything that we know of. They just knew that they wanted to give Jesus a respectful burial. But what they were doing was putting their entire livelihoods on the line. They put their, their positions within the church on the line. They put their careers on the line. Because if you get excommunicated from the church, guess what? None of the other Jewish people will do business with you. So most likely, Joseph of Arimathea would have lost a lot of his wealth, a lot of his business, all for, all for this, this time. And so they took Jesus and if you, if you get into what it takes to, in those days to bury a body a, the Jewish way, they would have immediately made them ceremonially unclean, one, during Passover, two, on the day of preparation, which is before the Sabbath. Both those days, you don't want to be ceremonially unclean. So these two men would have literally have had taken Jesus' body down. The Jews believed that there should be no foreign objects inside their body. So they probably would have had to start off by taking off the crown of thorns because that, that, that can't be buried with Jesus. They would have literally have had to have taken the, the thorns and the crown off of his head. I'm sure that there was blood everywhere. I'm sure it was not a very beautiful sight to see. I'm sure that there were thorns stuck inside of his skull, inside of his head, not to mention his entire body who had been whipped, dragged through the dirt, spit on. They would have, they would have had to clean his entire body. They would have had to take his literal corpse, and they have certain ways that they, they wash it. But not only that, every wound would have to be cleaned of any foreign object, any dirt, any sticks, anything. They were, they were doing this with their hands. Then they would have to stand Jesus' body up, and they would pour water over his head a certain way that it would, it would wash everything off. And then they took his body, they laid it down, they put a certain linen cloth around it from head to toe, and then they began to tie off with, with straps the, the, the feet and at the knees, and then uh, one to hold the hands, and then one to hold the jaw closed. They did all this for a man that in this time they believed to be the Messiah. They had made a decision in their heart who Jesus was, and they were not going to let him have a criminal burial. 
Because a lot of times when you died on a cross, what they did was they took you outside to Gehenna and threw you in the fire. That was it. Not only that, he gave up his tomb. Now, a lot of times they would bury a person in a tomb. They would wait a certain amount of years, come back, gather up their body or their bones, and take those bones back to where they were from. Because you wanted to be buried in Jerusalem. That was, they believed that's where the Messiah was coming. So that's where you wanted to be for, there for the resurrection. You didn't want to miss it. That's why you were buried in Jerusalem. But these two men did something that the disciples didn't do, that Jesus' family didn't do, and they had everything to lose. And I just I love the example that they were willing to lose everything for this man's corpse, not knowing that he was coming back in three days, not knowing that there may be a time in a week or so where they could look him back in the eyes and Jesus would go, thanks for doing that. I recognize that you two did what you did, not to mention eternity. To be the two guys in eternity that always be like, we took care of Jesus, you know, and when nobody else did, we, we made sure that, you know, it's like they're going to they're gonna look at him and look upon him for eternity. And we know that Nicodemus goes on to die poor. Um, there's not a lot about Joseph of Arimathea, but it's evident that they lost a lot in life to follow after Jesus. And, and again, I think these are just examples of men and women um, that it's records of someone who made a decision to have a genuine faith, but it highlights their works. I mean, if you look at the Bible, oftentimes it highlights their works. And I think that is something that we should be more mindful of, that we should be more thoughtful of when it comes to how we live our lives on a daily basis. How, you know, who are we at work? Who are we within the church? Who are we when we're with our friends? Who are we with our non-believer friends? Because you may be the only Bible that anyone ever reads. I'm sure you've all heard that before. Right? You may, someone may not pick this book up and start reading it, but they'll, they'll watch you. They will read you, especially if you say you're a Christian. They'll be watching and waiting for you to slip up. And I just think it's so important. You know, one, one way to really, um, and this is my homage to Chuck Smith, one day he always uh, made it simple was, you know, you're on a boat, it's a rowboat, you've got two oars. On this oar, you've got faith, and on this oar, you've got works. They only work together. Because if it's your all faith, you're just going to go in circles. But if you're all works, you're just going to go in circles. You, they work together. Now, I don't know what it is for you all individually, where you're at, but I'll let you and God figure that out. You know. But there are so many opportunities within the church to show good works and to have good works. There's so many opportunities in this world to show the good works of God. To, to, you know, it, it tells us right there that, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, the demons, they believe in God, but they don't have any good works. So therefore, they have a dead demonic faith. Let that not be us either. Let us be mindful of that. And again, I think that this is something that's really spoke to me, um, which is why I definitely wanted to share it today. Um, you know, but it's important. It's important to think about in our own daily lives. Do people at work even know we're Christians? You know, do people that we interact with at Publix, I mean, obviously you don't have to be like, I'm a Christian, God pray for you. <laughs> don't be weird about it, you know. But I think there are, are plenty of ways that we can be polite and kind and different and not walking in the ways of the world, not, not believing the world's advice, not giving out the world's advice, you know, giving out the truth of God, offering to pray for people that are in need. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities that we can have. And when the church is hurting, there's so many opportunities to 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 have good works so that's it let's pray and uh we'll finish it up lord i just thank you 
for you, God. I thank you that you love us despite of us, God, that you chose us regardless of who we are on the inside, Lord, that you just love us. I pray that everyone here um, be challenged by your word, uh, that the Holy Spirit's just moving, um, that we be um, excited about doing the works of God, the, the good works, that, you know, looking for the things that you've laid out before us so that we can walk in them, Lord. And uh, I think we'd all be surprised how often it can happen. Uh, Lord, I just thank you, God, that you are so constant in our lives, that in our inconsistencies, you're always consistent. In our faithless times, you are always faithful to us, Lord. And we don't deserve it, God. And it's by your grace. And we just thank you. I pray we all have a, a, uh, a life like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, just ready to give it all. It's like Elisha, just ready to just burn it all and go, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, that you love us and you would call us to do that. I pray again for this church, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that you just show compassion on the hearts and minds here, Lord, um, knowing that you can offer up to us a peace that, that surpasses all understanding, Lord. Um, and I just pray, God, that for those who are hurting and those in a need, Lord, that you just fill their hearts with all comfort and love and peace. And uh, thank you for this place. Continue to, to have your hand upon this place, Lord. I ask for your blessing here, Lord. We love you and give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.